listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Going to be looking at Acts 20 in a moment. This is going to bring an end to this version, this season of the study of the book of Acts. Each fall, we've been working through a section of the book of Acts and taking a number of chapters and, and seeing how God's word takes and, and uh, is, is lived out in the Apostle Paul in the early church and how God's word can be lived out in our lives as well. And so we believe God's word is transformational, and I trust that today there would be transformation and there would be commitment that would happen as a result of his word here this morning as we open it. And, and so just to encourage you to follow along in a few moments as we'll be reading from Acts 20. This picture that I want to start out by showing you here this morning was taken of um, my family and with my grandparents about nine years ago in the summer. This was six months before my grandfather died at the age of 106. So there you're looking at 106. 106-year-old man. And my grandmother died about six years ago now at the age of 103. They were married for a total of 78 years. And, uh, and they had met each other two weeks prior to getting married. And uh, they, they met in church, in a little country church in Lang, Saskatchewan. My grandfather saw her, saw my grandmother in church and asked her that day if, they, if she would marry him. And two weeks later, there was a church potluck and a marriage. And it lasted 78 years. Now, we oftentimes joked towards the end of my grandparents' lives is, is that probably one of their greatest concerns uh, as, as they were living so long was, was for their friends and what their friends were no doubt thinking, friends that had died, you know, 10, 15, 20 years before them, you know, in their 80s or in their 90s and, and were waiting in heaven for them. And, and, and they were getting concerned, starting to think, well, maybe Gustav and Wanda didn't make it. You know, where are they? They haven't shown up yet. What happened to those Lutzers? And, 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 and finally they did. And, uh, and their home going was a sweet celebration uh, for family and for friends. But in the last six months of my grandfather's life, he, he, he kind of retreated into himself. He, he was fully aware of everything that was going on. They were both living in a, in a care home and, and receiving just great care. And he was very agreeable and, and, and a very wonderful client to, to have there in, in that place. But he just kind of stopped talking. He just retreated into himself. Sometimes you would see his lips move when, when there would be a prayer that was being prayed or a hymn that was being sung or the word that was being read and you'd see his lips move a little bit. But other than that, he had remained silent for a number of months. About a month before he passed, here at this party, this celebration to celebrate my grandmother's then 100th birthday, family had gathered in for this celebration. People were visiting and laughing and it was there that he spoke for the first time in a number of months, and it would turn out to be the last words that he would ever speak. And as the room grew quiet for a moment, he spoke in German in a very audible voice that people could hear. And he said, enough about these things. Let's talk about Jesus and the word. His last words. Last words to be spoken here on this earth. What powerful last words and legacy that he has left not only his family, but even you here today to be encouraged by that. 106 years, 
Having lived through thick and thin, through, through difficulties, being refugees, going from Poland, going to, um, to, to Afghanistan as refugees, then finally coming to Canada and starting out a new life, losing family members to illness and to sickness and, and uh, various other things that took place. And through all the years, the culmination of his life ended with those words, it's all about Jesus and the word. That is the most important. That is the most important thing that we can live for. And this was a scene of them with four of the five children. My father's not pictured in, in that, of that special time of prayer and time in the word and time of worship that they then enjoyed together there at that birthday celebration. I wonder today if today was your last day. If you were to be taken into eternity, what would summarize your life today? What would be your legacy? What you are doing and what you are building today is summarizing, cementing for time and eternity your legacy. The good news is you're still alive. At least I think most of you are still alive sitting here this morning. Hopefully you will be at the end of the service. And the good news of that is that the cement is still wet. There's still an opportunity as long as we have today and if the Lord gives us tomorrow to establish a godly legacy for time and for eternity. And the more days that the Lord gives us, the more opportunity we have to cement this, le this legacy for God's glory, not for ours. In Acts 20, Paul is giving his last words to some very dear friends, and these are powerful, powerful last words. He's called the, the Ephesian elders to come together. The church from Ephesus, he, he's called the elders to come, and, and as you will, will see here on this map, if, last week we were in Troas. Remember what happened in Troas? Paul was preaching. He was preaching a long time, and, and the guy fell asleep in church, fell out of the window and died. Uh, that story had a good ending, but it's a great reminder. Don't fall asleep in church. Wake up the person next to you, even right now. Make sure they're awake. Turn to them and say, are you awake? Are you awake? It's not a good idea to fall asleep in church. So make sure that the person next to you is awake. And because uh, good things and bad things can happen when you fall asleep in church, as we learned last week. Um, that story does have a good ending. But, but Paul is now leaving Troas. He gets on a ship. And, and remember, he's wanting, he wanted originally to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But because of a threat on his life, that didn't happen. And so he went the long way up and around and visited, stopped in at some of the churches. And last week, as I said, he was in Troas. And now he's wanting to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost. That's 50 days after the Passover. And he's thinking, I didn't make it there for Passover. Maybe I can make it to Jerusalem, bring this offering to them. He hadn't been there for some, some scholars I was reading this week. He hadn't been there for 20 years. And he was no doubt like, I just can't wait to get to Jerusalem. I know it's not going to be easy, but I'm going to go there. I want to go there. I want to see the, 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 the folks from the dear church there from where it all began in Acts chapter 2 and where the movement of the early church started and he wanted to get to Jerusalem. But he knew that if he stopped in Ephesus, he'd never get away from Ephesus. So he goes to the port of Miletus and, and you'll see the little pin kind of go there. It, it's about a 20 to 30 mile walk from from. Miletus to, uh, to Ephesus. And so he, instead of going into Ephesus, he ends up calling the elders to come from the church in Ephesus. And this is a deeply emotional time. 
It's a time for him to be with dear friends that he had labored with in Ephesus just prior to this for three solid years. And Paul believes with all his heart this is going to be the last opportunity he's ever going to have to be able to see these people face to face. And so this was an an emotional time. Now Paul wasn't sick and he wasn't elderly, but he just knew with the escalating in suffering and the persecution, the imprisonments that were no doubt awaiting him and which were awaiting him, and his desire to get to Rome, which he did make it to Rome, although he didn't make it to Rome in the way that he thought. His ship was shipwrecked on his way there and he ended up going to Rome in chains but he made it to Rome in the end and he knew that his chances of ever seeing these folks would was very very slim and so he gives them these final words and they are important final words and we're going to just read this entire passage here I encourage you to follow along in Acts chapter 20 starting um, part ways through verse 18. And it says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord, from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourself, to yourselves and to all the flock in which which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which which he obtained with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then he said to them these things, he, and when he said to them these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. 
Now, these words weren't just words for elders or for the leaders in the church. These words are for all children of God. Paul is basically saying, I'm leaving and you can't lean on me anymore. I'm not going to have the influence that I've had with you face to face anymore. But the character and what God has built into my life, God wants to build into your life. And these realities of who I was and what God has built in and through me are legacies and their character qualities that he desires to build into your life, to build a life that makes a difference, not just here for time, but for time and eternity. And so folks, first thing I'd encourage you to write down, when it comes to building, when it comes to building and leaving a godly legacy, it starts with Jesus at the center. The Apostle Paul had an encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9. And then again, we get another account of this as he is before King Agrippa and he's giving his testimony in Acts 26. Encourage you just to write down those passages and read his testimony. How he was heading in one direction with his life and he was passionately pursuing that, pursuing, he, he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, an encounter with Jesus Christ changed everything. And he totally went to 180 from persecuting the church to building the church, encouraging the church, planting churches. And folks, you can't build a godly legacy for time and eternity without having Jesus at the center of your life. And Paul was one that was fighting the conviction of the Holy Spirit on his life. In Acts 26, I love a statement in there that when the angel was speaking to him or when the Lord himself was speaking to him, there on the road to Damascus, we get these words, why do you keep kicking against the goads? Why are you so stubborn? This is good news. Paul was under deep conviction. The Holy Spirit was at work in his life convicting him. Even though he was on his way to go martyr some Christians, go persecute some Christians, we see and we understand that the Holy Spirit was doing a work of conviction on his heart. And this gives us hope that even some of those who seem the most opposed to God on the outside and seem most, most ticked off or, or, or upset or, or the hardest of hearts that we might think might be going on in their lives and hear the Holy Spirit can be doing a great work and, and kicking against the goads that's a statement that was used back then as, as a farmer as someone working in, in the fields caring for ox or for, for different animals they would have their walking stick and on the end of that walking stick they would have a little sharp object made out of sharpened stone or whatever it might be and they would use that stick to be able to kind of steer the animals along and, and if they are brushing up against something that they shouldn't or getting out of line they tap them with this stick and that little pointy little part of that, that stick, that sharpened stone would kind of gouge in against their thigh or against their leg and, and they'd kick against it. And in the same way, we can kick against the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And folks, today, if you do not know Jesus Christ in a personal way, I want you to know God's desire, our desire, the reason why we meet here together, our desire for you is that you would become a Christian, that you wouldn't no longer kick against the goads, that you would surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Because without Jesus Christ at the center of your life, you're spiritually dead. You're dead in your sins, in your trespasses and sins. And spiritually and eternally, you will not go to heaven. You will not experience the life that is to be experienced here on this earth and the life hereafter without a relationship with Jesus Christ, without Jesus being at the center of your life. God's desire is that you repent and you turn from your sins. Trust Jesus for the forgiveness that, that he was the one that took the penalty, the wrath that we so much 
deserve ourselves, that he took it upon himself. And so we can find new life and help in him. This is the core of what we believe. This is what changed everything for Paul was having this encounter with Jesus Christ and having Jesus at the center of his life. To leave a legacy for time and eternity, one that will really make a difference, it starts with Jesus being at the center of your life. And today is Jesus Christ at the center of your life. We're going to ask some other questions as we go through this. But oftentimes we can be excited about Jesus. We can be excited about the work that he's doing in us. And we start to drift. We start to move away. Sadly, this church in Ephesus 35 years later is found to be very lukewarm. They have, have left their first love. And Jesus comes and he speaks to that church and calls them to repent. To get back to your first love. Get back to having Jesus at the center of your life. And I trust that today that we would all examine our hearts to see is Jesus Christ at the center of my life. If there are areas we need to repent of, areas we need to get rid of, areas that we need to, to change in our lives, may we do that. And by faith, continue our walk with Jesus Christ. The second thing, in order to leave a godly legacy, is you have to get over yourself. It's not about you. We have to realize that life is not about us. In verse 18 and 19, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And then in verse 19, look at that. He says, serving the Lord with all humi humility and tears. And then down in verse 24, he says, but I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. A godly legacy is about humility. Easy to say, hard to do. Being humble is not, is not something you are, um, you know, and, and something you do. It is something that we are to pursue, it's pretty hard for us to say, oh yes, I'm very humble. Because the moment you start saying that, you realize I'm not humble anymore. <laughs> and even for the Apostle Paul here, when he says, serving with all humility, th this wasn't him bragging. This is talking about a guy who had it all. This guy could have had any job that he wanted in, in the teaching field, in the educational field. This was a guy who gave up family and friends and lived and chose to live a humble life. And it was very easy to see. That he lived in humility. He thought of others greater than himself. In, in thinking of others more highly than ourselves, it, it's very hard to do because we're naturally, we're so stinking selfish. We are. So oftentimes before we even do something kind towards someone, we think, well, I wonder what they're going to think of me if I do that. And so easily we can be thinking of me, myself, and I, that unholy trinity, so often before we think of others. And Paul gave up so much, as I mentioned, he was so educated, far from home, constantly traveling, encountered so many different difficulties and opposition, and he continued to keep going. And, and, and what God did through him was astonishing. Why? Because he saw God greater than himself. He saw the needs of others more important than his own needs. He served people. And a godly legacy is realizing it's not about recognition or reputation, what others think about you. It's what the Lord knows about you. That is, that is what is so vital and so important. It's not about living for the praise and the recognition of others. If that's your fuel, if that's your fuel in life, how many likes do I get on social media? How many followers do I have? How much praise, how much thanks do I get? You know, oh, that turkey this Christmas was exceptional. If that's what, if that's what is going on you for, to, in order to be able to motivate you and to keep going is the praise of others, that, that fuel, it'll just constantly keep burning up and you're going to need more of that. It's not about living for the praise and recognition of others. 
the most important praise and recognition we can hear is on that day when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And you know, honestly, I believe that a life short of hearing that from the Lord himself, it's a life wasted. It's a life lived for self. But it's when we serve others, when we're serving with humility, caring for others, serving the Lord. Notice he, he says, he says, he, he was totally convinced that his serving of the people, it wasn't simply for the people, it was, it was a way that he could serve God. He says that in verse 19, he says, serving the Lord. He was serving people, but he saw it as he was doing this as unto God. Our service, our gifts, our sacrifice, we're doing it for God. And the reason why is because the cross of Jesus Christ stands as a reminder of the ultimate sacrifice. How Jesus gave himself and his willingness to, that was demonstrated for us that he was willing to do whatever his father requested and asked of him for the praise and the glory of God. Here's something else about a godly legacy. It's about caring deeply for others. We see how he cared. But notice in verse 19 it says, he, serving the Lord with all humility and tears. Then down in verse 31 again, he says, I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. What do you really care about? What makes you cry? What makes you shed a tear? What makes you weep? You say, well, I don't cry. Or maybe I cry a little, you know. It. Here we have tough, rugged Apostle Paul, escaping bandits, Escaping stonings, beatings, tough and rugged. And here he's weeping just like Jesus, how Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And here he, he himself, he's weeping. He's, he's serving these people with tears. Think of a grandmother this week that I was talking to, telling me here in our church about the way she'll wake up in the middle of the night just in tears over her grandchildren, over choices that are being made. And calling and praying for God to work in their lives. Look at the depth of how much he cared. In Romans chapter 9 verse 3, I encourage you to write this down. Paul even said here in Romans 9 3, he says, I would be willing to be eternally accursed. He said, I'm willing to go, I, I would be willing to go to hell if it could mean that the Jews who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ could be saved. <laughs> That's caring. To go to eternal hell and spend your eternity there so that others could be saved. That's the level of caring that the Apostle Paul had. He was so concerned about the spiritual well-being of people that they were lost. Or then he was concerned about the false teachers that might come in and, and, and take away and, and affect the, the sheep in the church. And he would weep over the way that the false teachers no doubt would come in and, and did indeed infiltrate the church. What do we care about? We care oftentimes about what others think about us, right? We care about our image, our reputation, our bodies, our looks. A little bit of a true confession. Um, if you see me looking a little different over the next few weeks, I have to renew my driver's license. And it's been bothering me that I have to declare what color my hair is. 
And so I was telling Charlotte, I was thinking maybe I should dye my hair so that when they look at it and, and, and want to write down gray, I could dye it for a, a, a certain amount of time so they could go back to my original color brown. Because it's just like, I don't know if I want to have gray for the next five years, however long these crazy license plates go for, if I want to have gray on there, you know? And uh, so all of a sudden, if for a little season my hair turns a little darker, you'll know that I gave in to my vanity. You know, and, and we get kind of worked up, and, and it's a bit of a joke, and, and, and I don't think I'll actually, well, maybe I will. I, I, I'm not 100% sure yet, but we get so worked up about what others think. I mean, who looks at the driver's license anyways? You know, the police officer who pulls you over and he's trying to, you know, uh, yeah, maybe that might be it and, and that might be it, you know, and yet we get so worked. What do you get worked up about? Come on. True confession. I would love if we had small groups this week because we'd actually have you all give a little confession about what you're all worked up about, you know, and, and it can be the silliest things. What other people think and yeah, we care. We get worked up over scratches on our cars. Stains in the carpet, having the latest gadgets. We get worked up about our bank accounts, our investments, our credentials. It's all wood, hay, and stubble. One day it's all going to burn and it won't matter. It won't make a difference. And all of these things that we get so amped up about. But do we care? Do we care for others like the Apostle Paul? Do we really care? What, what interrupts our lives? He was willing to interrupt his life, his plan for the sake of the gospel. Are we willing to interrupt our plans, our lives, our time for others? Will we take time to go for a coffee with a hurting person? Unless somehow we think it might be some advantage to us to be able to do it, kind of further, you know, just ourselves a little bit by doing it. No. We're in the midst of the crazy season, the silly season. There's all this kindness and all this giving going on and all the, it's kind of the high time for charities to be able to give. And, and sadly, sadly, I don't know, I've been so convicted of this in my own heart and as I hear uh, so much of this going on in our society, this is the time, you know, give to the food bank, we give to this charity, we give to all this because we want everyone to be able to have a nice Christmas. And, and, and that's good and that's admirable, but is sometimes our willingness to give and to do some of these things only to kind of ease our guilt and our conscience so we can go and just enjoy, even in a greater way, our own festivities and our own kind of uh, purchases and lavish festivities with a little bit less guilt? I wonder if we have to check our hearts in that. Do we care deeply for others? Not just that they have a nice Christmas, but that they have an incredible eternity in heaven. Life is eternal. It's not just about having a nice December 25th with presents under the tree and a nice turkey dinner. It's so much more than that. Do we care? Do we care about the lostness of their souls, the people around us, whether it's out on the streets, in the shopping malls, in our neighborhoods, in the workplace, in our own family, sitting around the table? Do we care about their souls? Do we care with tears? Are we praying before God for the lost loved ones, the prodigals, those who are separated from God? Does our caring move us into action? I trust that it does and that God would work in our lives and see what does caring look like in an action form way this next week, this Christmas season in the new year. You know, I read a sad statistic this past week that 90% of Christians will never lead another person to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Do we believe in the gospel? Are we excited about the gospel? And yet so oftentimes, 
we don't share the gospel, we don't seem to care about others, 90% will never lead another person to, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. 90% of churches will never plant another church. They just want to kind of become something in and of themselves. That's why I trust, Lord willing, in the years, years to come that we're going to be able to be at a, at a point and at a stage and move out in faith to plant other churches here in this region and, and here in Western Canada. We have a great opportunity to be a part of helping to plant Harvest Calgary South. Their launch date is coming up January 19th. You'll hear a little bit more about that. And what a great opportunity for us to pray. Maybe some of you want to go there just to go and celebrate and be there on January 19th. A road trip to Calgary. Yeah, you know, do some cross-border shopping and, you know, check in on, on the flames and, and whatever, but more check on the church there and, and, and to encourage the believers there. And we're going to have opportunity to support them financially this Christmas season. And, and, and you'll hear about that a little later. Do we care enough to actually do something? We have a great opportunity next Sunday night Christmas Eve, on your way out today, you're going to receive some of these little cards again. Don't refuse them. Please take them. We've got lots of them, and, and we don't want to have them in the church office. We want them in your pockets. We want them in your vehicle. We want them uh, for, in your hand to be able to hand out to others. There's five in each little elastic kind of invite here to, to invite people to come. Doesn't that movie look incredible? In the trailer that you saw, it's a 20-minute production, but it is moving, and the gospel will be presented at this. Invite friends, loved ones, neighbors, some who may be prodigals, who may think that they have stains that, that, that cannot be forgiven in their life, and it's going to be a special time of fellowship, and then we're going to go in and, and, and watch that movie together and have some time in worship. going to be a special time. Invite them Christmas Eve here into this place. May be packed out with those who we've invited, and we are trusting that God would do a work of salvation, that the best Christmas gift would be received on, the, on behalf of many this Christmas season. Amen? Amen. Okay, good. You're still with me. I thought maybe I had to do some nudging here and making sure we're awake. You know, and this is life-changing, and, and, and this is so important, but we have to get it over ourselves, pursuing humility, caring deeply for others, and even when it's hard. In verse 19, Paul said, serving the Lord with all humility, tears, trials that happened to me as plots of the Jews. I mean, in Acts 9, they tried to kill him in Damascus. They tried to kill him in, in Jerusalem. In Acts 13, they, they contradicted and slandered him in Antioch. In Acts 14, they tried to stone him in Iconium. Then later, they actually did stone him in, in Lystra to the point where he died or they figured that they had died and they left him for dead, but he wasn't. He got back up and he went back and he continued on. He stirred up the crowds in Thessalonica. He escaped to Berea and on. On and on again, we see the pattern of his life. In, in 2 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 9, he goes and he gives a, a detailed account of, of, of what took place in, in, in his life and in the suffering. It's actually 2 Corinthians 11, just to check that and, and encourage you to read that partway through the chapter. And he just talks about being on the run from bandits and, and, and the times he was beaten and shipwrecked and went hungry and starving and all of these different things. And at times it's going to be hard. We're going to face opposition. We're going to at times be be very discouraged. Things are going to, we're going to fall flat on our faces at times in, in just setbacks and difficulties and we're going to want to quit. We're going to want to give up but we don't. We continue to keep on going, getting over ourselves and trusting the Lord. And the decision to be a Christian is a decision to follow Christ and it's going to involve some hard times. It will. It just will. But as we endure 
As we stand strong, as we lean on the Lord, he will sustain. Take and read Isaiah 42. It's not in your notes there. I encourage you. Just this chapter just blessed me this morning. Isaiah 42. Just read that. It talks about how, the God, how God will restore the discouraged. He will strengthen you. He will see you through. He will level the playing field. He will make it so the, the, the mountains and the valleys aren't so deep. And he will sustain and give sight to his children. Read that passage. It will encourage the living daylights out of you this week. And then a godly legacy, third thing we see here, proclaims and lives the gospel. Look at in verse 20, he says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teach you in, uh, and teaching you in, in public and from house to house. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, I didn't shrink back. And, and this word shrink that he's talking about, shrinking back, it's actually a military term. It's about going into battle and facing a tough enemy. And, and, and even though you're outnumbered and even though it's tough and, 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 and you may want to retreat and run, you keep pressing on. You don't shrink back. That's what he's saying here. Even though it was hard, I didn't shrink back. And I declared to you repentance towards God. He went and did this from house to house. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the gospel. Simple and yet so powerful. True salvation requires more than just simply having a nice little belief in Jesus and praying a simple little prayer. It's more than just praying this prayer. Oh God, please come, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins and move on from there. And, and you're good. It's like, oh yeah, I prayed the prayer. Mark the box, you know, turn it in the offering basket and, and you're in. You know, that's how it works. No, that's not how it works. What Paul is talking about, yes, we need faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the work that he provided for us on the cross. Seeing that we are sinners and that we've fallen short and we deserve God's wrath. But notice he says repentance before God. It's not just simply about trusting God for our salvation and then continuing on my own path. It's a repentance towards God. It means a change of direction. Repentance of my sin. We, we repent of the, the self-salvation, thinking we can make it on our own, trying to earn favor from God, trying to get good marks from him. No, we come and we embrace Jesus Christ and he's the one that saves. He's the one that forgives. He's the one that bore the wrath of God that we deserve. It's knowing that I'm heading in one direction, my own way, away from God, but now I follow God's way. I follow his word, I follow his ways. Jesus first in my decisions. Jesus first in the direction of my life. So many decisions and so many life plans that we end up making, we plot the course and then we just ask God to come alongside and bless them instead of getting down before the Lord on our knees, having others even at times on major decisions, praying with us, standing with us, searching the scriptures to see what God would say. And we, we kind of seek to live our own lives, but, but as, as followers of Christ, we seek to live a life bringing glory to him. It's Jesus first in my decisions, Jesus first in my directions. Jesus first before I make a move, before I buy a car, before I start a new job. All of these different things. Are we pursuing Jesus in these things? This is the way that the gospel just doesn't ignite the Christian life. We continue to be fueled by the gospel, by these truths. Once we're saved, we don't forget the gospel. We continue to go deeper into it. It's not something in the rear view mirror, but it's something that we continue to, to rely on and trust in. We have to quit pretending as believers that we have it all together because last time I checked, none of us do. We don't. We don't have it all together and yet we love to give that plastic and shiny kind of look whether it's in church or in our neighborhoods. The world is not wowed 
by our selfish hypocrisy and our nice little slogans and, and our nice little statements. But what makes a difference is when they see Jesus at work in us. They see humility. They see that when we mess up, that we fess up. That we confess, that we make it right. That they see that, that we need Jesus every hour, every day we need him. Placing ourselves daily, just relying on him at the foot of the cross. Jesus, more of you in my life and less of Meldon, less of me, less of each one of us. And so it's continuing to, to proclaim and, and living in the power of the gospel. And then fourthly, a commitment to the word of God. He didn't sugarcoat the truth. He didn't entertain. He didn't give, you know, in his speeches, four steps to living your best life now. How to be rich and prosperous and have a joyful marriage. Oh, that, th th that's all in the word of God. But what he taught was the whole counsel of the word of God. He didn't entertain. He didn't tickle the ears. He says in verse 26, Therefore I testify to you this day I'm innocent of the blood of all. Again, this example from Ezekiel that he referenced in, in Acts 18 as well of the watchman. He said, I didn't shrink back. I, I, I laid it all out. I gave a full shovel in declaring the truth to you, the whole counsel of God. He didn't shrink back. Again, he uses that word, that military. I just kept moving forward. I kept preaching the word. You know, some didn't like it and many rejected it. I continue to keep on going, standing firm in the word of God. And folks, this is what I appreciate so much about Harvest, our first pillar. It's the thing that it was that it got me at hello. The first time I saw it about five years ago, proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. See, it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. Not just pick and choose little verses here, kind of like a smorgasbord. Eh, don't like that, don't like that. Ooh, Brussels sprouts, yuck, you know, and, 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 and that kind of thing. No, it's, we need the whole word. We need the whole word to make the whole Christian. God's word keeps us from drifting. It builds strength and endurance. The promises give us hope because the promises are true. The promises that are yet to be fulfilled will one day be fulfilled. God's truth keeps us from falling into error. It's vital that we are in the word of God, that we know the word of God, that we're familiar with it. It will help us to identify false teaching. And folks, I want to tell you this morning, if you stand on the word of God, you'll never regret it. You won't. No matter how, at times, difficult and how it, difficult it could be in the short term to, to honor God, to honor God in your business, in your marriage, with your eyes, with your mind, to honor God in those kind of ways in, in, in all areas of our lives, God will honor the commitments that you make in following the word of God in your home, in your business, in your decisions, in your finances. God's word is true. God's word will sustain. It will give hope. Cling to it. Read it. Get into the word of God. Study it. Memorize it. And it will also help provide protection from wolves, which is really important. Look at in verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flocks. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. He says, there's going to be those who are going to come in and going to try to influence you from the inside. But even those from within the body, from, from within the church itself, are going to say things and, and twist scriptures. And how do we stand strong against false teaching and wolves? By knowing the word of God. A word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That we know his word will keep us strong in the midst 
a very trying times. And folks, I can honestly tell you with the things I see in our world today, even things within churches. I, I read this week on social media, a guy who uh, was fired from his church in the United States sometime in the last year. Um, and, and it was because of alcohol abuse and, and a number of other disqualifying kind of factors that his, his elders in love dismissed him and moved him on and said, you are not to be the pastor here. Now he's starting a Facebook church of some sort and, and it's a church and he says the Lord told him to do this even though his marriage is now dissolved and he's, he's in a divorce situation and, and people are not sure if he's gotten the help that he's, he's, he's gotten, uh, that he needs to get the help from and, and, and clearly he's not meeting the biblical qualifications for a pastor and yet the Lord told him so how can you dispute that no the word of God tells us that this man is disqualified if not for a season I believe from being a pastor for good here on this earth and, and this is an important thing, but, but we can twist things and emotion and, and feeling on, on, on these different things can, can move in and, and distort the truth of the word of God. And this is why we need to know the word of God. And it's how we protect ourselves. It's the way we stand firm by knowing the word of God. And there's times that the word of God, people will come and they'll put a slant on the word of God to make it much more agreeable, much more likable. At times, God's word won't agree with our lifestyle or a lifestyle that we're wanting to pursue or consider the desires that you have, but stick to the word. You won't go wrong by sticking firmly to the word of God in all areas of our lives. Growing in this, it, it's a process. It takes time and we need others to walk with us, stand with us, pray for us in this. And then also, second last one, living a life of generosity. Look at in verse 33. He says, I didn't come after I didn't covet anyone's gold or silver or clothes. He's living with a giving attitude, not a getting attitude. He easily, many ministers, many teachers in this day would come into town just as it can even happen today and they demand a certain salary, they demand a certain amount for their speaking and, and all of this and he, he, he wasn't about getting. He was simply about giving. And he says, I worked hard among you. You know how I labored amongst you. What was he doing? He was making tents to provide for himself as well as even for the needs of others, he says. And, and he had a giving attitude in all that he was doing. And we see today how materialism and, and coveting and wanting what others have, it's such a bondage in our lives. Not just for people out there, but it's a bondage that we have. We see a new house that someone has. We see a new car. We see this. We see that. And we think, I need that. I want that. I'll be something if I have that. And it's, it's a lie. It's a stronghold. And these strongholds will destroy your life, will destroy your joy in the Lord. And so what do we do instead? Live a life of generosity. A giving life. Should we hate money then? Just like have nothing to do with it? Just have a hatred towards it and, you know, stiff upper, stick, stiff upper lip about it and just money, money bad? No. It's having a right relationship to money. A right relationship to our finances. Here's approach. It's not in your notes or it won't be on the screen, but encourage you to write down these three G's. Here's a great approach to, to money and finances. Gain it honestly. First word, gain it. Gain it honestly. In other words, work hard. Make an honest living. No cutting corners. Giving a full shovel at work. Not overcharging. Give a full shovel. Gain it honestly. Second of all, grow it wisely. Make smart investments. 
Usually those investments that are too good to be true are what? Too good to be true. Be careful on those investments, but grow it wisely. And thirdly, give generously. Don't get attached to it. And don't wait until you have great gain in order to give. Start that giving right away. These three could all be happening together at the same time. Gain it honestly, grow it wisely, give it generously. Don't be attached to it. And the more you get, the more you give. And we can be tempted to think that blessing and wealth comes uh, by accumulating more things. And the more things we have, the better. No, the, the more bondage that leads to, the more stuff you have. But here Paul reminds us it's more blessed, the words of Jesus, more blessed to give than to receive. Are you a giver or are you a taker? When we're givers, it will break that materialistic mindset, that coveting stronghold that can so easily build in our lives and it will leave a legacy for time and eternity as we are people who give. I think of my grandparents, Saskatchewan farmers, worked hard, made something out of nothing and yet live such generous lives. I remember my dad coming home as I was a high school student and he would be over helping them with their taxes. And he says, I, it, it makes no sense. Here they are in their retirement years and their giving is above their income and they didn't have a lot saved up. They were generous with their kids. They helped put them through Bible school. They helped them in so many different ways. They were generous with us as grandkids, not spoiling us, but just, you know what, you'd go over there and help and they, they would, you know, do some work for them and, and they, my grandpa would be so thrilled to be able to give me a $20 bill and back then $20 bill was a big bill, still is, and I was very thankful for that, very generous lives and they died poor. They had very little to, that was left behind. No, because they sent it all ahead. They made rich, deep investments in their children and in the kingdom of God and in the work of God. They were so generous when it came to uh, giving to the Lord's work. They died some of the richest people this earth has ever seen. And giving will break that materialistic stronghold in our lives. And so live generously. And then finally, the last one, a dependency on prayer. That we'd be prayerfully dependent. Look at the, what a scene this would have been. After he's given this message, they get down on their knees and it says, and when he had said these things, they knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him. What a picture. Them on their knees together praying. Then they're hugging they're crying. In verse 32, even Paul said, I commend you to God. And he says, now I'm, I'm giving you over to God for God to, to take care of you. And, and they spent that time in prayer. It was a praying church. And oh, folks, if we're going to be effective, if we're going to live a godly legacy, we need to be dependent on prayer. This is where we find our strength as individuals and as a church. Our power, our strength comes through prayer, our unity comes through prayer. One of our, my good friends who lives uh, in Alberta, he would um, talk about how he and his wife would have the, the arguments, you know, that, that couples have, and it would just drive her absolutely crazy because right in the middle of it, he would say, honey, let's pray. And she's like, no, I want to fight. I want to have this out still. I'm not done yet. And he's like, no, we got to pray. And, and in the midst of, that prayer time, God just started doing a work in their heart, bringing back the unity and the discussion that followed brought glory to God. What a beautiful way 
to live our lives prayerfully dependent. That's why I love pillar number three here at Harvest, believing firmly in the power of prayer. But it just can't be something we have on a board and something we cling to. It's something we've, we've got to do. It's realizing that nothing good, nothing eternal will come without prayer, without seeking God. And it's not simply to have it as a pillar in a church and something that we're excited about for others to do. It's something we need to be doing. That's why I tell people at 8.45 on Sunday mornings, hey, this is the most important meeting of the day. It's 8.45 in the lobby or right before the service when the band w meets together to, to, to pray together right before the service or 8.45 for all to be able to come and spend time in prayer. Because if God doesn't show up, we're, it's just flapping gums here on a morning. It's just going into in one ear and out the other. We need God to come and do that work and ignite his spirit in us. And, 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 and we do that through prayer and it brings unity and it, it, it brings a oneness. And that's why at 845, I encourage any of you. Some of you can't. I understand that. I don't want to put guilt on you for not being able to come with children or, or just the, the way that it works for you. But 845, powerhouse prayer, that, that's the time we need to be praying and committing our morning to the Lord. That's the important work. And then we have our prayer in our small groups. And again, such a vital part, especially uh, most weeks the men go with the men and the women pray with the women and, and just a, an important time together, praying together, praying for the needs of one another, upholding one another in prayer. Our monthly prayer nights. How many of you are making plans for Christmas? Yeah, I'm sure you're coming up with some kind of Christmas plan. Thank you, most of you, for being honest and raising your hand. And I just thought I'd give you a little exercise and wake you up in that way. But, you know, we make all these plans for Christmas. Are we making prayer, prayer plans? Are we getting prepared up through prayer? And Wednesday night, it's going to be a special night. It's going to be carols and prayer and worship by candlelight, by Christmas lights. And, and it's going to be just one of those relaxed settings, but we're going to get after it in prayer. We're going to prepare our hearts to encounter whatever we're going to encounter in the malls and in uh, the streets and, and, and with family, that we would be living the gospel, proclaiming the gospel this Christmas season. And we're going to be praying for the upcoming events of our church. We're going to pray for our church in the, for uh, what God desires to do in our hearts and our lives and in this city, in this region in 2018. These are the sweet nights of prayer. And again, when we don't pray, the root problem with our churches in Canada is that we don't pray. When you have a prayer meeting, it's usually just a handful of people. I'm thankful that, that we get more than a handful, but we need more handfuls of people coming. Because this is a way that we say prayer is important. Joining together with hearts with one another. Again, I know some of you Wednesday nights and, and that doesn't, doesn't work, but, but if you can, make it work. Make it a sacrifice. Change plans if you're able to. To gather together monthly for prayers. These are important times for a church. It's us declaring our humility that we can't. But God, you can. And God, would you work in our lives? And so this morning from this passage, we see a godly legacy. One that's going to last for time and eternity. There's more that you can pick from this passage. But here are six important things. I encourage you even as the band comes up now. For you to look at these areas. And examine your own life. Is Jesus at the center of my life? Am I living for myself? Am I needing to get over myself in some areas and, and live to serve and to care for others? Am I proclaiming and living the gospel? Am I committed to the word of God? Am I faithfully studying and growing in the word of God? Am I living a generous life? Generous in, in my time, in my talents, in the gifts that we've been given, our finances? 
And am I prayerfully dependent? If there's areas you might say, all six of them, Melden, check marks, I need help in all of those. You go before the Lord. And even now, just as we sing the song, I encourage you to stay seated as a prayer. As a prayer like, Lord, we need you. To leave a godly legacy, one that's going to make a difference for time and eternity. It's our coming with humble dependence on the Lord in these areas. Let's worship together.